You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. So I've talked to Tessa West, uh, who is an associate professor of psychology at New York University. Um, she's got a great new book, which is called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. You have to stay for the Yes And story. I say at the end that maybe this has been the top 10. It might even be in the top five of Yes And stories. Uh, Caroline Webb, I'm looking at you. You've got one of the top ones uh, as well. Uh, so enjoy the pod. <laughs> Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Tessa West, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, when I finished your terrific new book, Jerks at Work, I couldn't shake the idea that although this is an evidence-based look, a look at toxic workplace behavior, you use a ton of examples from your own work experience, not just in academia, but in the jobs you had growing up. And don't you feel like every person who has ever worked with Tessa West is scouring this book to see if they've been called out? <laughs> yes. Um, I have been stopped in the bathroom a few times just in the past couple of days by people saying to me, should I be worried? <laughs> right? Because yeah, I, I mean, you go, sure. it's, it's not like you it's not like you're high, you're not naming names, but you know, the persona should be able, the person should know it's them. Yeah, I would think so. Although I, I try to remind people that I call myself a jerk pretty often in this book as well. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. You know, if, if I call you a jerk in some way, just rest assured, you can turn a couple pages and you'll find me throwing myself under the bus. But yes, I think definitely people are concerned that they're going to be called out. Um, but I think it's funny, the people who are the most worried are actually not in this book at all. Um, and I remind them that that's because I'm talking about everyday jerky behaviors, not the really egregious stuff that's really pissed me off. Right. <laughs> so it's more the kind of everyday stuff um, that really actually made the kind of final cut to the book. And I think that you you speak to the need for this book in that a lot of leadership training, if not all of leadership training, focuses on the various pro-social behavior that you should have. And it right. doesn't focus you on dealing with the crap and crap people. Yeah. It also assumes that people can actually implement this training and that the reason why we suck at this stuff is just because no one has told us how to do it better. Um, and I often think that's not actually the case. We're not getting great training, but we also often have all these people around us who are enabling jerks and are making it possible. And sometimes even really well-intentioned people are, are handing off 
you know, levers of power to jerks at work in ways that just save them time. So they don't actually realize that they're, they're making these types of everyday workplace behaviors really possible through their unintentional, you know, small everyday choices. And the way you, you, uh, um, the way the book is, is laid out, you have all these jerk types and we're going to get into that in a second, but I still want to talk about the sort of bigger phenomenon before we jump into there, jump into that stuff. You write in the book, in the beginning of the book, quote, most jerks are skilled social perceivers with lots of social connections. Underestimating them won't get you anywhere. Um, that's a little scary because it's, right? I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's a formidable opponent. Yeah, I, I think that um, the biggest mistake people make is underestimating their jerks at work or assuming these people, um, you know, are stupid and don't know what they're doing and are just, you know, reactionary and, you know, make these in the moment decisions and have no self-regulation and all these things. But the real people that uh, are, are quite good at this are very skilled social perceivers. They know how to come across as um, good leaders and, and competent team members to some people while doing all their dirty work behind the scenes. And those are the people who are the toughest to beat because they often get powerful people as allies on their side. Um, and they, you know, they make themselves invaluable in the workplace. Uh, and in each of these sections, you talk about ways that you can deal with them. But overall, you say in the book that, quote, the antidote to jerks at work is friends at work. So that is that that that's the power of like more sort of social connections. And, and this isn't just like friendships, right? It's allies and people are going to upset. Right. Yeah. I think our I think um, most of us realize the importance of forming friendships and close relationships with people at work. We spend more time with these folks that our own family members and our spouses and stuff. But I think where we often go wrong is we assume that our best allies are also our closest friends and confidants. And often it's the case that it's people who are a bit at arm's length from you, who aren't involved in your personal business, who don't really have a stake in this, aren't uh, emotionally invested, make the best allies, people that we don't typically approach for help. um, And we don't typically think of as those who are interested in even kind of helping us get over some of these difficult relationships at work. Yeah, I was thinking about that in my own experience. And it's like, you know, it's, it's who is that, who's a fulcrum, who's got all the information. And often it's like an executive assistant. Exactly. The executive yeah. assistant um, in academia, it's the tech, it's the IT people because oh, yeah. they go to people's offices and people show their true colors in front of them because they um, don't really need them for anything other than, you know, some day-to-day computer help. They also see what's on everyone's computer. So they have like the hottest gossip. Um, <laughs> it's, it's these folks and they're really widely connected. So they know lots of different people. Um, where most of us just have a, a small group of people we work with, especially, you know, in this era of, you know, working remotely, a small group of people we work with over, you know, repeatedly over time, but we don't have very broad networks anymore. We don't connect with lots of folks that are outside of our teams or outside of our immediate group. Um, so we don't think about these kind of looser social connections as helping us with these problems. All right. So the first uh, uh, jerk at work that you identify in the book is the kiss up, kick downer in which you introduce us to Dave, uh, who had a reputation for selling a lot of shoes. Yeah, Dave. So, so in my life before academia, I sold shoes um, for a high-end department store. And one thing you need to know about sales in these stores is it's commission-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made about 8% commission for every pair of shoes I sold, which as a college student actually turned out to be a ton of money. And there are just certain folks who will sabotage whoever they need to to sell the most shoes. Um, including these like just small immature acts of behavior, like hiding common shoe sizes from everybody else and hoarding um, in the back room. 
But it's really important in sales that you create the illusion that you're a team player, because at the end of the day, if everyone on the floor is fighting with each other and there's just a bad vibe, um, it makes customers feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so managers know this and they'll do a lot of work to intentionally not put two people on the clock at the same time who are nasty to each other, where customers walk up and think, I don't want any of that. You know, I'm not here for this. I just want to buy some shoes. So my first real experience dealing with someone who's really good at getting what he wanted was this guy, Dave, um, who, who was amazing at selling shoes. He made six figures as a college student um, selling shoes. And this is, you know, in the early 2000s. And everybody hated him because he just did all this stuff to make it impossible for other people to succeed. And it's very much a zero sum game when you're all working at the same time. But the managers loved him because he made them money. And yeah. he had the veneer of a real leader and just the look of someone who he, he knew exactly what to say to get the power players on his side. I wonder where this guy is now. Where is this guy? Um, well, he went into pharmaceuticals for a while. Of course he did. Of course, <laughs> so he, of did. course he did. Yeah. So who knows where he is now? But um, you well, interesting, too, that he went in there because you also when I think of hierarchies, I think of pharmaceuticals and, and you say this type loves strict hierarchies. Yeah, they often do, even if they're the kind of bottom of the hierarchy to begin with, they like a system where if you get to the top, you have all the power and privilege. Um, They're not big fans of, um, you know, egalitarian worlds. They like a strong hierarchy and then they know exactly what they have to do to kind of climb to the top. And for people like Dave, that just means selling more shoes than everybody else and often stealing sales, being a shoe shark, we would call them, um, from everybody else and the kind of ethics become an afterthought when you are thinking this way. You're very Machiavellian. There was another a podcast that we did, and it might have been your, your colleague, Jay uh, Van Bevel, uh, who talked about uh, the people who get their ideas uh, uh, believed in are the ones who talk first. And you actually yep. did a study, a study around this that you mentioned in the, in the book. Yeah. So, I, you know, we often wonder, what does it take to have power and influence in groups? And you know, what does it take to persuade other people? And, you know, we went into this research and I think this kind of makes common sense, but if you have the best arguments, you're going to persuade the most people. But what we found is if you're a bunch of new people who don't know each other yet, the person who exerts themselves first, and it's not, it doesn't have to be a power move. They can just simply get everyone to go around the room and say their name. They can organize the group. They can sort tasks. Um, they often sort of by default become the most powerful person in the room. And what's great about this from their perspective is it's often uncontested power because nobody really sees it as trying to exert influence. They're not coming in too strong. They're often offering to do things that nobody else wants to do, like organize the the calendar for people. And it's it's a really tricky way to gain power and influence really early on and to then kind of climb up that hierarchy if that's if that's what you want to do. One of the other interesting elements of that is this idea around status, which is something, of course, as you can imagine, in the theater and comedy is, is hugely important. You think of famous yep. comedy duos, there's always one who's high status and low status, and there's the upsetting of the status, which creates the comedy and all that. And what, what we know about really skilled improvisers is that they're never maintaining one status. And the example I use all the time is Tina Fey. Tina Fey, yeah. who is very, very powerful, had to work with Alec Baldwin, Lauren Michaels, Tracy Morgan. I mean, like she is going to assume a lower status to maintain her authority. And that is a that is a superpower. And as I often say in this podcast, uh, it's not a superpower unless it can also be used for evil. So I guess that's what these folks are doing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. You have to be flexible in how you actually use that status and know the difference between status and power, right? So in that case, she's willing to kind of take a step down to maintain power and control um, over her career, over the comedy, over the social situation. And if you're too static in the way you think about these things, you're not flexible at all, then I think you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have a really hard time applying these tactics from, from one context to another. All right. The next guy, the next, uh, I just said guy, because you know, most of these are guys <laughs> and I know you make some of them women, but let's be make, honest. I try to mix up the genders. I know, but right. 80, 80 90% are guys. Can, am I right? In your experience? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, All right. Uh, the credit stealer. And you write, quote, credit stealing is an intimate form of workplace theft. It is not done by strangers, but by our teammates, mentees, and ostensible friends, end quote. Wow, that sucks. Yeah, I think, you know, um, when people feel like they're having their credit stolen, it often hurts in a lot of different ways. Like one, it just feels unfair that they're not getting credit. But kind of the, the most common complaint I hear is, I can't believe that person did that to me. It feels like such a social transgression because to steal credit from someone, you have to, be, you have, to have a pretty close working relationship with them. They have to trust you with ideas. They have to feel comfortable expressing their ideas in front of you. And you have to be working in an environment where ideas are in the air and everyone's kind of allowed to talk about them and not kind of like hoard them and keep them private. Um, and so good credit stealers know how to really kind of um, socially massage the situation to make people feel un- really comfortable with them, sometimes as mentors, sometimes as close teammates, before they actually start stealing credit. They don't just kind of jump in and do it. They, they really, they warm you up first, get you comfortable um, get you to trust them. And that's when they start doing it. And then you say one of the taxes, tax uh, tactics that they use is underclaiming or giving away credit to someone else that, that it actually is theirs. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the trickiest things that's happened. And the example I talk about is uh, in the domain of real estate. But just when you're ready to complain about someone, um, they switch up their game a little bit. And they'll often underclaim credit very publicly to um, give you a pat on the back or to try to support you uh, in front of the boss or in a team meeting or in any kind of speech. So it really makes them look quite generous. And everyone else in the room is thinking, wow, what a generous person. We know they actually did a ton of that work, but it's so so generous of them to share the credit with this other person. And then you look crazy, right? You can't just walk yeah. in and say, but this person steals credit from me. You look ungrateful. So it's a really tricky move that um, I think sort of the the most conniving credit stealers among us are able to pull off. Very akin to abuse in terms of yeah, that. it's abuse. It's a form of abuse, definitely. Yeah. Um, you talk about one of the one of the ways you can like uh, fight against this is by having more voice. T- t- tell us what what you mean by that. Yeah, I think that voice is something that we sort of talk about, but we don't really know what it is, and it means a few different things. So often we think it just means speaking up first and loudly and, you know, making sure that we quite literally are heard by people in the room. But people who are quite powerful often gain that influence before they've ever even walked into that meeting or walked into that um, presentation in front of the boss. And the best way to do this is to become known as someone who can get things done, who can help others in their difficult social relationship problems. Um, you know, becoming a a really critical network tie. So someone who can connect others to each other. And you really need to be seen as someone who has voice before you walk into this meeting. You need to be someone who, when you speak, others trust you in the room and your boss or whoever is in power will say, let that person speak. I really want to hear what they have to say. 
Um, and that takes just a lot of kind of social savvy. Um, and so you can't wait until the credit stealing is about to happen. You have to really become known as someone whose good ideas stick to them, um, who has that voice before any of these meetings where the credit stealing happens even begin. I think this is also interesting. And it, it's uh, Vanessa Bonds we had on the podcast who talks about the fact that we all have influence and we don't actually realize, realize it. it. Yeah. Same thing with voice. We yep. all have voice. And the thing is, what we have to also learn is our authentic voice is the voice that we need to be listening to. So yep. someone trying to be like me at Second City is not going to work. It's not going to be authentic. Mm-hmm. But, but if they are truly themselves and they, and they contain multitudes, as Whitman says, they have interesting things and powers, superpowers that we don't know. And, yep. and I think just people don't know that, that, they, that they have it already. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we often try to have a couple of different skills that we think everyone else values. But you're right. You've got to figure out what you're actually good at really early. And I think the people who are successful are often those who sort of know what they can and can't do. And then they really focus and foster those things that they they actually have some kind of natural talent at, and they don't try to force the other things. Um, But I would also say that we all have voice, but I think one thing we know from social science is that our beliefs about ourselves are often wrong in lots of ways in, in either way. So kind of one example of this is, how accurate we think we are in reading others' emotions is correlated about zero with how accurate we actually are. And some people who are really good think they're bad. And some people who think they're really bad are actually quite good. And I think this can happen with voice too, where those who think they have a lot of power and influence and talk a lot might not realize that they don't because they're not actually getting corrected. And those who are listened to and who are valued and respected are maybe not getting that feedback. And so they don't speak up enough. So part of the problem, too, is just we're really bad at knowing what others think of us because people don't tend to give that kind of feedback in everyday life. We don't walk around saying, thank you for that. Here's what I think of you. So you have to be a pretty skilled social perceiver to pick it up. And the work that we've done at the University of Chicago, we're working with uh, Nick Epley and and, and built, created actual exercises that force people to practice the skill of asking each other, of sharing their own information and in turn receiving other people's information as a way to actually get them to understand you and you would understand them. Because yeah, it, you have to be skill. really explicit, right? Yeah. It's actually not rocket science. It's you just have to really be but very it's not, clear. But it's not natural to apparently how we're wired as human beings. I, probably because we're, you know, these are people who are different. They're not part of our tribe. And so we immediately put up that sort of fear wall. But right. but it's amazing when you actually do it and try it. And there's so many studies around this, right? Where they, you're making people go out and they're like, they, I thought that would be terrible. And then it ends yeah. up being, you know, like nice and fun. And, and people say yes to you for like the weirdest shit. Yeah. Oh, they totally do. If you just simply ask, I think it's like, we're always surprised when people are, are just honest about what they need and they want. And when they want that feedback and they ask for it, it's just not normative for us to just kind of do it naturally. But I agree with you. We just have to train that in people. And then half of the problems that I talk about in my book would be solved. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> a lot of it's just right. communication issues. Totally. Uh, all right. I want to get through most of these or all, I want to get through all of them. The bulldozer. This one seems obvious. We know, we know this person, right? Everybody knows this person. Yeah. The bulldozer. You know, one thing about the bulldozer that they really got, um, they sunk their claws in deep to us during the pandemic because they're the ones that always respond to emails first. And they write these, what my colleague Joe McGee calls email walls, just like these 14 paragraph emails that no one can get through. And on group emails, they just completely dominate the chain because they respond quicker than anybody else. Um, You know, these people are super obnoxious to work with, but I think they can be really pernicious if they're super well connected. And they can, they can go behind the scenes to shut things down, 
to redirect things in ways that you don't realize are happening. And so you could be on a team with one of these folks and just not be getting anywhere and not really knowing why you're being shut down, you know, by the boss or the boss's boss, because they're just kind of going behind the scenes and doing all their dirty work. Yeah, you talk about their two trademark moves, taking over the process of group decisions and rendering bosses to be powerless and stopping them. So one of those is just invisible to the person that you're dealing with. And the other is you often don't know it until it's too late. That's this person who talks first and then doesn't stop talking, among other things. Yeah, I think. And they'll often volunteer to do things that you hate doing, you know, and so they they have skill sets. Um, you know, they're really good at putting together, it's often like these medial tasks, putting together materials in ways that others can't, like small things that actually really block us at work. You know, they're the only person who knows how to use the new software system that we all are now reliant on for our calendars. Um, I remember when Outlook was first invented and only two people know who to use it. And those people had so much power and control. And if they wanted to bulldoze, they could, you know, these kinds of things. And so, it's tempting to often rely on folks to do these things, but if they're bulldozer, you're going to be kicking yourself down down the road that, that you allowed this all to happen. I want you to tell the story that opens the section on the free rider uh, jerk at work, which is about Fr- uh, French professor Max Riggleman, and he he had oxen that he was dealing with, and then did the state. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so so Max was trying to understand how you can actually get the most power out of your animals and also out of men. Um, to do things like push barrels of hay around. Mm-hmm. And what he found and what he, what he thought he would find is if you get a bunch of oxen to pull, say, a barrel across a hill, um, you know, on a farm or whatever, they would show twice as much, they would move twice as quickly with two of them than with one. But what he found was that they actually got really lazy and they started to really slack off. And the more you put together, the less amount of effort each one put in. And so he wasn't a psychologist, but he did this like really crazy psychology experiment that looked like, you know, some kind of American Ninja Warrior situation where he had all these men come in and do a bunch of different physical tasks. And, you know, he was able to tell how much effort they put into things like, you know, tug a rope and stuff like that. And what he found is that, you know, um, you put in about one eighth of the effort that you put in by yourself if, if you're in, you know, in a large group. And the more people together, the less effort each one of those individuals is willing to put in, especially if you can't actually tell at the end of the day who did what. And so we have this free rider effect that we now see in human beings. We see it in cats. We see it in animals. You know, it's just sort of a universal phenomenon that the more people there are on a team, the less work each person's going to put in. And it's from very basic things to clapping in a stadium to complex processes that you do at work every day. And I think it's something that probably every single person has encountered it, at any point in time. I mean, my son is eight and he talks about free writing all the time in school, like with building mm-hmm. Legos and stuff like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so and we, we all are very familiar with this. And I think it's, it's one of the most frustrating experiences at work is when we have a free writer and the smart ones are well-liked. They're, everyone's well, that's, that's what you say. And then, and then people don't want to call them out because they're well-liked. Yeah. You know, if nobody liked them, it would be very easy to kick a free rider off the team because right. they don't provide any value. But the good free riders actually are great at finding teams where there is social rapport among people and everyone likes each other. And then they'll, they'll take up a job, but it's often just not a job that's really needed, like making dinner reservations and stuff like that. So they sort of feel useful, um, but they're not actually doing anything and they're great at making excuses. Um, and this actually got way worse during the pandemic because with online work and remote work, Free riders were able to make up different excuses to different teams about why they weren't doing work. And none of those teams crosstalk 
So they were never fact-checking the lies. Um, so unlike in the office where you could just walk down the hall and say, okay, Steve just told me he can't get this thing to me because he owes you something. And the person would say, what are you talking about? He told me the same thing. You know, we fact check, but with remote work, we just simply weren't doing it. So people are getting away with it even more. And we feel bad because everyone's burned out and exhausted. And so calling out free riders is actually something that um, we're discouraged from doing right now. It's an a-hole move to call out a free rider. Uh, the next one, and this was probably the one that surprised me the most because I felt like you talk about micromanagers and I've known micromanagers or I thought I knew micromanagers, but this one line sums up, I think what, what was a unique insight to me, which quote, the irony of the micromanager is that they work the hardest, but accomplish the least. That's a special kind of hell. It's a special hell. It's, you know what? Micromanager is the one jerk that I actually feel sorry for because a lot of them, aren't doing it because they want to waste their time or anyone else's. They're doing it for, you know, either lack of experience, um, expertise, or um, they think this is just sort of the best way to manage. And a lot of people are trained this way. It is a special kind of hell. They actually, micromanagers are not lazy. They work all the time. They just don't accomplish anything. And if you work for one, you're probably not going to accomplish, accomplish much of either because it's just like (laughs) you're doing like you're running in circles for them. And you know that they're probably working out of fear. And if they're working out of fear, it's probably that their boss is terrible. Their boss is terrible or they have, um, you know, put some expectations on themselves that are unrealistic. Um, often these folks were really good at your job and that's why they got promoted to manager. And now you're in the lucky position of holding the job that they were experts at and they have no idea how to do their job. So they're conscientious. So they're just going to micromanage you as you, as you are the or as you're like a version of their past self. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, that is, that is like a worse thing at work when you realize you're like, oh, wait a sec. Like we're not promoting people who make good leaders. We're just taking like, hey, you're that top salesperson. Now you're in charge of all these people. And like, it, it's not like you would take a great pitcher and say, hey, you're a great pitcher. We're going to make you now batting cleanup. <laughs> like, yeah, no. it's really crazy. We do this at work. We would never do this in sports, right? No. <laughs> it's or anything like in music. Thing. It's like you're yeah. uh, Yo-Yo Ma, get on that guitar. <laughs> he probably would be fine, actually. Yeah, yeah, actually Yo-Yo is the one, yeah, the one guy who can do anything. String instrument is a string instrument. No, uh, yes, I agree with you, partly because we don't really ever train managers. We just look at who's really good at work and say, okay, guess what? You have more responsibility now. And that responsibility isn't more of what you're already doing. It's a completely different thing, which is like people management um, and dealing with conflict. It, it's, it's a new job. You should have like a new set of training, but we don't ever think of it as that. We think of it as a promotion, um, which I think is very dangerous to, to think that way. All right. We got two more. Uh, uh, and the last one is the one I'm most interested in. Before, before we get to that is the neglectful <laughs> boss. I have had one of these. Uh, my, my neglectful boss would disappear for forever. I'd be doing stuff, but then all of a sudden would swoop down and change everything. <laughs> like, yeah. like just crazy making. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize neglectful bosses and micromanagers are actually kind of the same person often. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they, if you have a neglectful boss who just 100% neglects, then you just don't have a boss. You have a, someone who's boss in writing, but you're just a free agent. Um, most neglectful bosses are like yours. They disappear and then they panic. They panic because they realize yeah. they don't know what's going on. And they, they come down and they assert all sorts of control over processes that they were not in, ever involved in. It feels completely arbitrary when they decide to do this or not arbitrary. It's always just terrible timing and they change everything. And then they leave. And then they leave leave again. And then you don't even know if they're going to ever check on that thing that they just made you change. And so 
it's just this constant state of uncertainty followed by extreme anxiety followed by more uncertainty. All right. So for this last one, I'm going to have to, I, and I'm, I'm actually trying to remember because I didn't make, put down in my notes, the stories that you have in the section in part, because the gaslighter, I've had a recent experience around this. Have you, yeah. have you experienced a gaslighter? I, I have experienced, okay. I experienced gaslighters. Yeah. Uh, I've been I one of the people it, that consulted someone who was dealing with one. Yeah, no, I haven't had it done to me, but I have, I have witnessed it being done to others. Um, yeah. and, I, and, and actually, I think I was somewhat helpful in that because, as you note in the section, the enemy of the gaslighter is record keeping. And so I was able to be like, mm-hmm. I'm writing this down in an email that you've got that I witnessed this, this action. And that was used actually when this got taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the most heartbreaking form of jerk at work because if you're on the receiving end of this, you often wonder what you did wrong to deserve this. What did I do? And the thing that you did was you trusted the person and you were good at work and you were conscientious. And your biggest mistake was being someone who could produce good work and was very trusting and, you know, maybe a little bit naive, often, um, you know, knew at work. So you didn't have a ton of social connections and just didn't have a cynical bone in your body. And so the person I talk about who's the victim of the gaslighter, um, I I say I would have accused this person of toxic positivity because they just simply aren't capable of seeing anything wrong um, in people's personalities and they they don't assume anything sinister. So gaslighters, um, you know, they lie, but lots of people lie at work. In fact, most of us lie. Um, But their lies are, you know, to deceive on a very grand scale. and, And what they do that's very distinct from other forms of dishonesty is they cut you off socially. And so mm. if you think you're being gaslit or you think someone else is, you have to look for those signs of social disconnection. And often they don't come in the form you think. So most people think, you know, gaslighters are telling their victims they're no good, they're losers, nobody wants them. And that's definitely true. And I think that often happens in other relationship contexts. But at work, they often make you feel very special. Like you're a member of some special society or special club, you're on the inside, you get to see you know, you get to see how the sausage is made and nobody else does. And that feels good. And people don't like to admit that they sort of enjoy this relationship with their gaslighter in the beginning because they felt like they were the chosen one. And in the beginning, they tend to be very charismatic and they flatter you a lot and they get you to do things that you normally wouldn't do, but you find yourself saying, but I'll make an exception here. Um, And the the lying and and the true deception usually has to is a slow build. So that they test the waters first. Smart gaslighters don't just kind of jump into the deep end and gaslight. They, they really warm you up. So it's a bit of a frog in boiling water problem that by the time the very deep, you know, alternate reality level deception is going on, um, you are already in pretty deep. And you've probably also done a few things that aren't going to look so great for you either um, if the deception involves, you know, morally questionable behaviors and stuff like that. It feels like every other type that you talk about you have a little bit of heart for it because you're like, I get how you got here. Whether <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So, so, and this one has always felt to me like someone who's a sociopath. You know, I, I was like uh, unsure whether I should even put the gaslighter in this book because it definitely doesn't fit with my other types of sort of everyday jerks. But in the end, I just think this is such a fascinating person and a, and a common one. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do say in this chapter don't try to explain why they are the way they are. And the other chapters are like, well, there's all these like power levels that like might be influencing their behavior. Gaslighter, it's like, don't even try. 
it is not your problem to try to figure out why they got to where they are. And in fact, the example I talk about is someone who never thought of herself as capable of this, but she just started to slip at work and just didn't have her mojo anymore. And because of that, she had to steal to be able to maintain the level of status and power that she had. And the way she was able to, to steal was by getting the help of one of her um, team members to, to help her steal. And I think often with gaslighters, we think, well, maybe they're a sociopath. They have a personality disorder. And I think they probably, some of them do, but some of them are like in panic mode and they're just doing whatever they can to survive and make it work. And they're terrified of losing their status and power. And they're just kind of willing to do anything to keep it. I got a good idea for you. Uh, you, uh, if you've had fairly even somewhat problematic uh, uh, people at work that you work with, you should just send them the book and say, I thought you'd be interested in this. <laughs> you know, I was joking to someone that maybe that my book is like the new glitter bomb for yes. <laughs> jerks at work. Like instead of sending someone you hate a glitter bomb, you just send them a copy of my book. That's like, thought you needed this. <laughs> yeah. I th- thought you'd enjoy I thought I thought you'd find insights inside of this. <laughs> What are the what are the other? And also, thank you for mentioning toxic positivity. My podcast guest ne- next week is Whitney Goodman, who has nice. written a book on toxic positivity. Yes, absolutely. yeah, that's awesome. All right, so we always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. Great. So I'm going to tell a story about the time I gave the most humiliating presentation of my life. This is I'm already excited about this. <laughs> So I walk in, it's to a, a, a giant medical company. There's about a thousand people in the audience. And my talk is scheduled for um, something around like noon, around lunchtime. Um, I get there. They want me to get there really early. Um, I, I immediately realize there's a problem. So this, this group's supposed to be super excited about hearing about the science of speaking up and having a voice and this kind of stuff. I walk in, it is just dead. There's, there's nobody there. The people there look like they, they're wearing yesterday's clothes. It's just a hot mm-hmm. mess. Um, so eventually what happens is someone from Human Resources comes over and says, we have a little bit of a problem. Um, the CEO threw a huge party last night and all the top leaders are totally hungover. And so I know you were supposed to actually open this day-long conference with some science stuff, but we're really going to have to kick it into gear and get these folks awake. So we're switching the order of our talks. And instead of you opening, we're going to have a magician come in and he's going to open. He's coming on stage and then you're going to follow this magician. I'm thinking to myself, wow, what a disaster. What is this, a 10-year-old birthday party? Right. So, so I'm thinking, okay, whatever. Some stupid magician's going to come on and pull a rabbit out of a hat. And then I'm going to wow them with my science. This is not what I'll happen. So, so I'm sitting there on the sideline and in walks this like professionally attractive man who looks like he could have played a Disney prince and he waltzes on stage and they introduce him. And apparently he was on the Ellen DeGeneres show yesterday and he's like a total badass. So on stage, he has a chair and then there's like some sort of towel covering the chair and he levitates the damn chair. He levitates the chair. I'm standing 10 feet away from the side. I can actually see the chair being levitated. I'm like, okay, this guy's good. Right. Mm -hmm. Then at some point they whip out, he whips out salt. I don't know what he's doing with salt, but he throws salt everywhere. There's some sort of trick involving massive amounts of salt packets, which Mm -hmm. become relevant later. So this amazing magician comes on and then they take him off stage and they say to me, okay, we don't have a lot of time. Normally we'd clean the stage up. We'd get you a lectern. You'd get your water bottle. You can stand there. You can do your professorial thing. We have no time. We're just going to bring you on stage. So they bring me on stage. There's no lectern. It's just me on this huge stage. 
I'm wearing four inch heels. So the, the minute I walk on stage, I realize this is going to be a disaster. There's salt everywhere. Mm. It's crunchy. I'm really afraid to slip. I'm standing up there. I'm holding my mic. Um, I realize there's a spotlight on me and the chair that was just levitated. And I'm standing there and they're like, okay, we're going to put your PowerPoint slide up. Go. So I'm ready to open my talk. All of a sudden, all the lights go out. Everything stops. Um, all the tech goes. They're able to get the spotlight back on me, but it's just me on stage with the spotlight with, with no PowerPoint, nothing. Dead silence. Eventually, someone yells, entertain us from the audience. <laughs> I'm like, what? Someone else goes, yeah, entertain us, which makes sense. A magician came out before me. Sure. So, so normally I'd say no to this crazy request. What am I supposed to do? Like I'm feeling really humiliated already. And I do the only thing that uh, a clear minded person would do. And I, I started to tap dance. I tap danced on stage on the salt. Uh-huh. I did the Charleston. I did the time step. It was the most humiliating experience of my life, but I got a standing ovation. <laughs> yeah, you did. Cause you dance, you danced. I mean, tap dance. I followed this hot magician and I tap danced. And then right when I finished my tap dance, everything came back on and I gave my boring academic talk. But it was by far the most humiliating experience of my life and kind of the most awesome at the same time. Tessa West, I think you might be in the top 10 yes and stories. Of all time. <laughs> and we've done nearly 400 of these podcasts. So that's, that's high, uh, high praise. <laughs> Much Thank better you. than Amy Edmondson's yes and. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure Amy's was great. <laughs> I'm just trying to pit uh, social scientists against each other. That's against each other, yeah. <laughs> That's the, jer- the jerk podcast. Uh, the book right. is called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers, and What to Do About Them. Tessa West, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.